You're listening to Irreverent Bible Talk, a podcast that's not your grandma's Bible study, unless your grandma happens to be really, really cool. Listener discretion is advised if you object to bad words, women preachers, or terrible puns. Welcome back to Irreverent Bible Talk. I'm Josh. I have a degree in broadcasting and religion. And I'm hoping my mic settings are right this time. And I'm Jenny. I'm a Lutheran pastor. And also I play a lot of video games. On this episode, we are talking about Old Testament and New Testament God. Who are they? How are they different? And am I saying a heresy right now? So grab a beer, a mocktail, a cup of coffee, or your beverage of choice. And join us as we explore how the Bible is more complicated and more fascinating than you might expect. Well, we are back after our Halloween spectacular extravaganza. Yes, we had a great time having Pace on as our guest. And now we're we're diving into a topic that actually was uh, requested. Uh, but before we get to that, Josh, what are you drinking? Uh, you know, right now I'm... I'm still trying to take things pseudo easy on my stomach, so I haven't had alcohol since I, the whole hospital stint. So I am drinking water, but I also do have a little bit of soda with me. All right. Or pop for you good Midwestern people like me. It's pop. Yeah, we, gotta... we support it. Uh, if you are not a drinker for whatever reason, that is totally valid. I'm glad you're staying hydrated. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I'm getting kind of tired of it. But what about you? Your can looked really fun. Yeah, I am drinking a fall seasonal IPA uh, from a brewery, a local brewery that's pretty close to us. And the can is really fun because it's got all this sort of like Halloween-y like uh, spiders and skeletons and witches' cauldrons. Uh, it's, so it's the can art is cool. Also, the beer is good, but you know. Well, is the name of the beer something like booberry or something it's no it's literally it's literally just fall seasonal ipa feels like a waste they could have they could have been more creative but yeah i could have had a little more fun with that but so yeah as jenny said this topic was requested and this is something that i've said before you know like old testament god is scary and then you have new testament god that's you know forgiving but is they're the same creation it's just we deal a lot more with Jesus, the Son of God, in the New Testament, and we don't necessarily hear directly God talking to people as much. So maybe that's why you don't think, at least for my opinion, maybe that's why I don't think of it as old New Testament gods as scary. And I think, like, this is something that I have heard from so many people in the time that I've been a pastor of this dichotomy of like, well, the Old Testament is full of, you know, judgment and wrath and scary stuff. And the New Testament is, you know, love and grace and acceptance. And so therefore, there's this difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, which is, I get where people get that idea from, but it's kind of fascinating to me because if you read scripture carefully that dichotomy doesn't really hold up there's a lot of love and grace and mercy in the hebrew bible and there's also a lot of like judgment and wrath in the new testament 
But the other thing that I find kind of funny about it is that this idea of an Old Testament God and a New Testament God was actually declared a heresy by the early church. And so it's funny that that idea has persisted like centuries after the church was like, no, no, that's not right. Yeah, don't say that. That's that's not a, a thing we approve of. But, you know, and for me, I guess I see example of like, hey, these people are sinning. You know what? Noah, you're a good dude. You build a boat. We'll save your family. That's it. Or I'm destroying this town. If you even look back for a second, you're going to be turned into a pillar of salt. And then you get probably the most famous verse of them all in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that's the key verses that we hear. We don't, you know, especially in the New Testament, I don't think we get into much of the fire brimstone style. At least I don't remember it. And there's a lot of things that you're going to be like, oh, yeah, we do this. It says this. And I'll be like, oh, yeah. Now I'm terrified all over again. Right. And and some of that is like for churches that use like a lectionary, which most uh, Lutheran churches do, where there's this kind of calendar of readings that's laid out ahead of time. That means that what most people hear in worship is going to be kind of limited to what is in the lectionary, which does not cover the whole Bible by any means. And then even if you're at a church that doesn't use the lectionary, there's still someone somewhere along the line deciding what parts of the Bible you're going to hear in church. And so there are, there are pieces that are left out or things that are more emphasized or less emphasized. And sometimes that leads to some misapprehensions or it might kind of reinforce ideas that we already have about what the Bible is like so that we're only seeing the things that kind of fit the narrative we were already holding. So, uh, yeah, I want to I want to dive into this and we're going to look at some counterexamples and we're going to look at why this idea of Old Testament God, New Testament God is uh, kind of problematic. But maybe we'll start with the the history and talk a little bit about Marcionism. So in the early church, so we're talking about, you know, Jesus lived and died in, you know, the roughly zero, year zero to 30 uh, CE or AD, more or less, that, that period. And then you had, you know, within a hundred years of that, the New Testament is written, the Christian faith is spreading um, across a lot of the Roman Empire. You have Paul's letters, you have all of the apostles uh, doing their witnessing. But once you get, you know, 100, 150 years out from Jesus, the church is starting to really wrestle with some theological questions. So the church starts to really have to think about, okay, well, what what is the trinity uh what does it mean to talk about father son and holy spirit oh that trinity not batman superman wonder woman not the dc trinity that's a different episode and what books are going to be considered scripture so for christians they already had the hebrew bible but then they have all these new writings about jesus and they have to make decisions about what's going to be included and what's not going to be included and so what starts to happen is that there's a lot of different people start to have a lot of different p 
positions and the church will periodically have these ecumenical councils where the sort of higher ups in the church, the bishops of various places will come together and they'll sometimes draw the boundary lines and they'll say, okay, this is within Orthodox Christian belief and that is outside the bounds. That is going to be a heresy. And so they were sort of drawing where the lines are of what is going to count as Christian belief and what is not. So with that backdrop, uh, there is a guy named Marcion of Sinope around the year 144. Uh, he was a Christian. He was an early Christian theologian. He was uh, the son of a bishop. And uh, he had this idea, this teaching that he developed, where he basically said the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Hebrew Bible, is not the same God as the God that Jesus calls Father. And that actually, in the Hebrew Bible, there is this uh, malevolent God uh, who was wrathful and cruel and uh, bad. And then Jesus came along and taught this new teaching and that this is the true God. And this this true God is merciful and loving and kind. And so for Marcion, when they were having this conversation about what should be considered the Bible, what should be considered scripture, Marcion said, throw out the whole Old Testament. He wanted to, to ditch the entire thing. Nothing in the Hebrew Bible, according to Marcion, uh, was valid. So, okay, so Marcion wanted to just disregard the Old Testament and say that's not real, really God. But you, that you can't have one without the other because if the God of, you know, quote unquote, the Old Testament, the Hebrew God, doesn't exist or not is something we acknowledge, then... How did God, like, send Jesus that is supposed to, like, negate all that? Right. So that kind of just, it's kind of a talking into a paradox. I don't know. Yeah. Chicken and the egg. Yeah. So I think, you know, in the, the Gospels that we have in the New Testament, there are a lot of uh, connections and references back to the Hebrew Bible, um, the prophets, the law, all of these kinds of things. And so I think for Marcion, he was like, no, 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 no. That's all the wrong idea. You shouldn't be trying to connect Jesus back to these things in the Hebrew Bible because that was, you know, like a, a false god or a false witness or something. So his version of the Bible that he proposed had one gospel, uh, which was a shorter version of the Gospel of Luke, and 10 Pauline epistles, so 10 of Paul's letters. So he threw out the whole Old Testament, and he threw out all the other stuff that we know of as the New Testament, so that would include um, the letters of John, and First and Second Peter, First and Second Timothy, uh, Revelation, all the, the other Gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark, and John. Which, if you're going to, like, pick a book and you want to make it even shorter, why wouldn't you just pick Mark? Mark is already the short one. Mark is already the shortest, but uh, apparently Marcion didn't like it. <laughs> so this was Marcion's position. 
And uh, he ended up being condemned by the early church, um, especially one of the early church fathers named Tertullian wrote uh, apparently a five book treatise against Marcion. So like, you know, your opinions are bad when somebody's like, I'm going to write five whole books about how wrong you are. And so eventually Marcion's teaching and Marcion's kind of sect are excluded. The The church says, no, this is not, this is not okay. This is not what we believe as Christians. So the idea, the concept of Marcionism was rejected and yet has never gone away and continues to crop up to where we are right now. That's surprising that we're not discussing that more on how that is you know, something that has been specifically addressed by the church. Like, no, we don't, we don't do that because that's, you're getting on the line of, you know, heretical thinking that could really change your belief system and not necessarily in a good way. Yeah. And this has real like implications. If we kind of think this through, if the God of the Old Testament is cruel and wrathful and uh violent and then the god of the new testament as revealed in and through jesus is kind and loving and merciful then the kind of logical extension from that is to say oh well the jewish people who still follow the god of the hebrew bible and who reject the witness of Jesus, they don't consider Jesus the Messiah, well, then those people must also be lesser, right? So there, there very quickly comes an anti-Semitic argument from this idea, right? So it's very easy to make the jump and say, oh, well, this is also reflective of Jews versus Christians, that Jews are violent, cruel, uh, murderous, and Christians are so kind and loving, uh, which was exactly the kind of propaganda really throughout Christian history. But thinking particularly about Europe in like the Middle Ages, this idea of uh, blood libel, this idea that, oh, Jewish people are killing good, innocent Christian babies uh, and therefore justifying all kinds of like horrible violence against Jewish people. It all kind of spins out from these assumptions we make about Old and New Testament or uh, Hebrew Bible and New Testament. And, you know, I oh, I was just going to say, and it it makes sense that if that was, you know, his belief that would he would cut the book of John out because, you know, the first chapter, the first few verses of John is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. So it is, I mean, it says specifically, like, no, this is, God is been there the whole time. And Jesus was with God in the beginning because of the Trinity, whole Trinity aspect. It's the same thing. So right then and there, that would put a big... A wrench in Mar Marcion's view. Yeah. 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 And I mean, if you look at, you know, like the Gospel of Matthew, 
starts with a genealogy and and is really intentional about tying Jesus's human family to all the stories of the Old Testament, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, David and Solomon, like all of these figures from the Hebrew Bible are directly linked to Jesus uh, in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. You also see that like in the book of Acts, especially the early chapters of Acts, where the apostles are starting to proclaim their Christian faith, but they're tying it back to their own Jewish roots and saying, you know, the God of our ancestors is the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And so for Marcion, who disagrees with all of that, he's got to throw all those books out because they don't support his viewpoint, Uh, which is one reason why I think we have to wrestle with the whole Bible uh, and not just toss out the parts that we don't happen to agree with. Or just, you know, quote the parts that we choose to agree with for our own enjoyment or belief system. Mm -hmm. We take it as Mm -hmm. a whole. Absolutely. So, you know, when we think about this idea of Old Testament God being bad and wrathful, New Testament God is kind and loving, as I said, there are kind of implications from that uh, that I think most people would not agree with, right? I think most Christians who have this sense of like, oh, the Old Testament God is kind of scary, they are not intending that to be like an anti-Semitic position. But I think we have to be aware of, you know, you might be the 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 first step on a staircase and you don't know that staircase is going to lead to like horrible conclusions. But to be aware that, yeah, that is the direction people sometimes have taken these assumptions or these, you know, positions about the Bible. But also, you know, in addition, like that is reason enough in itself to be like, whoa, let's pump the brakes on uh, Marcionism. It's also just bad biblical interpretation um or yeah i might be a little harsh there it is it is a narrow interpretation of what's in the bible it's not looking at the full picture and so what i'd like to do is kind of do some counter examples so that we can start to think about the old testament god in more merciful way yeah, because I would love to hear examples, and I think it would probably jog a lot of people's memory. Be like, "Oh yeah, God did do that in the Old Testament and saved all those people." Or, right? Oh yeah, God, that wasn't <laughs> the greatest thing in the world in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think one place uh, that's helpful to look at is the Exodus story. And again, like these things are complicated. So the story of Exodus also includes you know, God sending this angel of death to kill all the firstborn in Egypt. I can understand why that seems pretty wrathful. Uh, But I want to turn the the emphasis a little bit um, to later in the book of Exodus. God has brought the people out of slavery because God heard them crying out in distress. God has brought them out of slavery, um, brought them to Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up the mountain to receive the law from God. And then meanwhile, the people down around the foot of the mountain don't know how long Moses is going to be gone. They start to get scared. They start to get nervous. And so they make this golden calf and start worshiping it. And in Exodus 32, God says to Moses, who's up on the mountain, 
go down at once. Uh, your people, this is God speaking, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you, Moses, I will make a great nation. This is a pretty wrathful-seeming God. But what comes next is, I think, like a super important part of the story that we don't always pay attention to as Christians. Moses argues with God. Moses says, God, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? So this is kind of like, uh, I don't know if this happens in your household, Josh, but whenever one of our pets is being really cute, I'm like, oh, look at my baby. And whenever that same pet is being bad, I tell my husband, like, can you please deal with your pet? Right. Can you please deal with your cat? Yeah. And he's like, why is it my cat when it, when they're being bad? <laughs> yeah, it's my dog. is. It's definitely my dog when things are, when he's a monster. When he's tearing up the carpet. Yep. Mm, yeah. Still bitter. Still bitter <laughs> about it. But whatever. He's a pup. It happens. <laughs> so that's the kind of thing that's happening between God and Moses in Exodus 32. That God says to Moses, your people that you brought out of Egypt are misbehaving. And Moses is like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not taking ownership of this. These are your people, God. The whole reason that the Exodus story happens is because these are God's people. And Moses really didn't want to do it. Like, <laughs> right? Didn't he be like, I don't I don't want to lead these people. Like, can you just have my brother do it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now they're my people? So Moses turns it back on God and says, no, God, these are your people. And you brought them out of Egypt. Moses was just sort of god's assistant right god's agent it was god's power that brought them out of egypt and so moses says remember abraham isaac and israel your servants how you swore to them by your own self saying to them i will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven and all this land that i have promised i will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever and then this is exodus 32 14 and the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. The Lord changed his mind. That is not something that we think about when it comes to God very often. Because we think of God as being eternal and perfect and unchanging by the way, a lot of those ideas actually came from Greek philosophy. That's a separate episode. <laughs> but this idea that God would change God's mind is so important. And the fact that Moses, at this point in the story, Moses, I think, has enough of a relationship with God to think, I can actually argue with God. I can contradict God directly. And Moses knows he's okay, right? He knows God is not going to zap him with a bolt of lightning. And Moses says, God, you can't, 
like, yes, you're mad. God has a good reason to be mad. But Moses says, you can't, you can't turn your back on these people. They're your people. And God listens to Moses, which is a, it's a very, it makes God seem very human in a sense. Like it makes God seem kind of more like us. So God does. God relents and God says, okay, I'm not going to destroy this people. I am going to continue to be in relationship with them. And just like for human beings, sometimes being in relationship is hard. And sometimes the other party does stuff you don't like. But this ends up becoming sort of central to how the Jewish people understand God. Because God's identity throughout the Hebrew Bible is going to come back to this story. I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's like the recurring refrain. God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is like the core revelation of who God is, is in the Exodus story. Yeah, that's really crazy. Because God is, you know, omnipotent, um, omnis whatever, you know, all the omnis. I can't remember all three of them or whatever, but... And then to say that they changed their mind, that doesn't really fit with the narrative that we're taught, always taught, like that God is perfect. God is, has everything planned out because then God couldn't change their mind. It would just be, that's correct. I was testing you or something like that. It was, no, that's a good point. They are my people. I just need to take a breath. <sighs> Fine. I won't murder them all <laughs> yeah it just kind of goes against how we're you we're you know once you see as that like that godly image of being perfect and everything's laid out in the exodus story you know we were in exodus uh 32 and then uh just a few chapters later uh, and pace actually referenced this uh in our horror episodes that uh Moses asks to see God and God passes by so that Moses can see God's backside. Uh, but when that whole kind of strange interaction is occurring, uh, God says as almost sort of like announcing God's self, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is another phrase that becomes kind of a recurring refrain for understanding who God is, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. If you remember back to our Jonah episode, Jonah quotes that, but as a negative because Jonah wants God to be more wrathful. Jonah's like, I didn't want to tell the Ninevites to repent because I knew that you're merciful and I didn't want you to be merciful, which is just, I love Jonah. Jonah is such a great story. If you haven't listened to the Jonah episode, you should go back and listen to it. Jonah is such a little bitch and it's, it's a funny episode and yeah, I would recommend it. But <laughs> what a brat. But you know, slapped. it's kind of relevant to our conversation today because people think, oh, the God of the Old Testament is so wrathful. Not as wrathful as Jonah wanted. Jonah's like, I wish you would be wrathful. And God's like, I care about Nineveh. Get over it. Right. Gave this whole opportunity when you would think Old Testament would just destroy villages. Like, no, he gave this population, this village, this 
people a chance to... Not even a village, like a city. Yeah. Gave them the chance to, like, hey, you should repent. And you should do things... This isn't a correct way of living. Like, you know what? We're right. We're going to do that. Yeah. And, you know, I think there there are a lot of parts of the Hebrew Bible that do seem pretty um, violent. And that, I mean, honestly, that are pretty violent. You know, the the narratives of when the Israelites come into the promised land, which is not vacant, right? Like, there are lots of people living there, and the Israelites go on a, a war path and kill a whole bunch of people because that is what God has told them to do. I can understand why that is kind of troubling when we're reading it. I, I don't want to minimize that aspect of it. But I think this is when it's important also to remember that the Bible was written by people and not written by God. And so we need to always have that kind of mindset of, okay, well, specific people wrote these books in a specific historical context, and what might have been going on for them? Like, what was their challenge? What was their struggle? What were they responding to? And that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to make it okay. We might still be uncomfortable with it. But there's a, there's a passage in, I'm going to actually look up where this is. So in the Psalms, uh, specifically Psalm 137, there is this verse that if you come across it, it's pretty troubling. And it says, O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. So, like, these verses within this psalm are celebrating the murder of children. And it's coming from a place of, like, retribution because it's talking to Babylon. And Babylon is, like, this real enemy, but, like, an enemy of mythical proportions um, because Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the first temple, took the people into exile. I know I've talked about uh, that history before. But Babylon was, you know, the conquering enemy. And so here in the psalm, people are speaking to Babylon and saying, yeah, we're going to pay you back for what you did to us. And, you know, probably the children that were killed in Jerusalem they're saying we're going to we're going to pay you back. We're going to kill your children in retaliation. Which is awful, right? Like this this should not make us feel good. It's really hard to talk about this without thinking about current events um because we are recording this in October of 2023 and Israel is currently va- invading Gaza because Hamas launched these terrible terrorist attacks. And so I think there is this kind of um attitude for people right now that there has been horrible loss and bloodshed uh, that's been experienced by the Israeli people. And then this desire for retribution, this feeling of like, well, we have to get them back for what they've done to us. And it, I mean, it's awful. So I, I don't want to delve too much into the, the current event side of things, but just to kind of contextualize this, when we read this in the Bible, 
we might come at it with an assumption of like, oh, well, this is divinely sanctioned. Uh, I think it's sometimes better to think, gosh, this is expressing the experience of people who are deeply hurt, right? This is, this is expressing the experience of people whose own children have been killed. And that the, the retribution and the violence of it might actually be more of a human thing than a God thing. That this is maybe not actually what God wishes for humanity. My, my reading, and this is, you know, looking at scripture broadly, my reading is God doesn't want anybody's children getting murdered. You know, to take it back to Jonah, God doesn't want the people of Nineveh to be killed. God doesn't want Babylonian children to be killed or Israelite children to be killed. God doesn't want Palestinian children to be killed or Israeli children to be killed. Um, but when we come across these things in scripture, I think sometimes we have to remember, hey, these, this was written by people. And when people are really, really hurting and grieving and suffering we're not at our best selves. And so some of that comes through even in the Bible. Yeah, that's really good. It's a really good way to say that. Yeah, you know, things are, things are very complicated, uh, certainly in terms of current events, uh, but also the Bible is complicated. Um, and we often need nuance to kind of think things through. Yeah, it's definitely complicated and more interesting than our listeners might think. If they pay attention to our intro. Right? It's almost like we need a podcast about it. Yeah, that's an idea. Well, I want to kind of take a moment to um, shift to the New Testament because we've talked about some of the wrath in the Hebrew Bible, but also the the mercy that appears in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and there's so much more we could get into there. We've just touched on a couple of things, but there are many, many places in the Hebrew Bible where God is merciful. God is gracious. God cares for the most vulnerable. This is a recurring refrain in the Hebrew Bible that God is merciful and kind and just and looks out for widows and orphans. Uh, and the other side of this coin, when we're thinking about Old Testament God, New Testament God, is thinking about what's in the New Testament. Now, we like to look at the New Testament and think like, Oh, like Jesus welcomes the little children and Jesus is the good shepherd and everything is like cuddly and happy. And that is also an oversimplification of what's in the New Testament. Uh, so I want to just kind of, you know, complexify things again uh, on that side of things. So, you know, the New Testament also has a lot of things that are like, pretty wrathful and harsh. Uh, and starting with the first book of the New Testament, which is the Gospel of Matthew, you have John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one who prepares the way for Jesus. He's this prophetic figure. Uh, and when he sees uh, Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to the river to be baptized by John, he says to them, you brood of vipers, um, which if you wanted to put that in kind of a modern parlance he's saying you sons of bitches you're coming out to me to get baptized who told you that you needed repentance who told you that you needed forgiveness you know basically get the fuck out of my face 
And uh, John goes on to say, uh, even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And John uh, proclaims, you know, the one who's coming after me is more powerful his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And, it, you know, we might look at that and say, okay, well, that's that's John the Baptist. That's not Jesus. But as you continue to read the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has all these parables where he's using this same imagery, right, of, oh, well, we're going to harvest the wheat and the weeds, but we're going to throw the weeds into the furnace. So there's this same kind of imagery of, like, separation and judgment and burning and, you know, gnashing of teeth that shows up in Jesus's own voice uh, in at least, you know, some of the parables uh, that, that we get in the Gospels. You know, we also have a, a strange kind of incident that occurs in uh, the Gospel of Mark where Jesus just like curses a fig tree because it doesn't have figs, which I have never fully understood, but it seems seems a little harsh. Uh, maybe it just wasn't, you know, the right season for figs, but Jesus is like, screw you, fig tree. That thing feels very human, though. Like, oh, you know, it sounds good, a fig, son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. <sighs> You, you stupid fig tree, I hate you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Burn this tree to the ground. Right. You know, we also have, uh, as we've mentioned in, in some earlier episodes, there's a lot of apocalyptic uh, imagery in the New Testament. Obviously, Revelation is the big apocalyptic text. But the Gospels have apocalyptic sections, right? Places where Jesus is saying, hey... Times are coming where the sun is going to be darkened and the stars are going to fall from the sky and there's going to be war and famine and bad things happening. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Dogs and cats living together. Exactly. Thank you, Bill Murray. But these are the kinds of, of images that I think we tend to associate with that Old Testament God, right? Of natural disasters and wrath and judgment. And those things are in the mouth of Jesus in the New Testament. So I think we're a little selective in our reading of, of Scripture that we tend to emphasize the, the wrathful parts of the Hebrew Bible, and then we tend to de-emphasize those same images when they occur in the New Testament. And vice versa, right? We love to talk about Jesus as the Good Shepherd, but let's not forget Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd, is actually in the Old Testament, right? That image of God being a shepherd way predates Jesus. Hmm. I guess, yeah, I forget that. So do you have any other passages that come to mind, either as examples or things that are challenging when we're talking about this kind of uh, concept? Well, I mean, you know, people want to say, you know, the New Testament God is everything's better, everything's... I think we forget the whole purpose of Jesus's crucifixion. Like there had to have been easier ways for that to occur, but he was tortured and murdered. Like I think we I think just using it that context is a uh, like dude was murdered. 
it was not, and that was God's son, like specific son, not creations. Like, oh, it's just going to keep going like part of God yeah. that went through that. Yeah. And honestly, like this might lead into a whole other episode where we talk about how we understand the cross. Uh, because I think, you know, there is a very strong Christian tradition that understands it as like, oh, Christ was like paying the price that like, really God wanted to murder all of us, but instead God murdered Jesus so that we didn't have to be tormented. I don't like that, that understanding. It's called the like technical theological term for it is penal substitutionary atonement. There are other ways also of thinking about what does the cross mean? Uh, why did it have to happen? So that might be a whole other episode that we, we talk about that. Yeah, that'd be good. There, there are some real tough, brutal parts of the New Testament, too, for sure. And I think, like, the crucifixion definitely falls under that category. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the one that just really stands out, like, of just, that wasn't a, oh, everything's okay thing. Like, that was a torturous event. And, like, for followers of Jesus, his loved ones, like, seeing your friend, your son, your everything, just, that's some mental trauma right there that isn't just going to go away. And and for Jesus himself, right? Like the gospels tell us that Jesus, you know, prayed in the garden of Gethsemane and asked God, mm -hmm. like, please let this cup pass from me. So, you know, <laughs> what what does that tell us about God? If if uh the son of God was asking not to go through with this, it's real tough. It's, you know, there's there's not an easy answer to that. We're not ending on a real light note here. No, but I think it's a good thing to end on to make people think about because it's there. And just like the Old Testament and New Testament, it's not always easy. Sometimes it is on a down note. Yeah. It's, uh, we always try to tie everything up in a nice, a nice bow, like leave it on a nice satisfying note. Bible doesn't work that way. Mm -mm. Sometimes the Bible's just hard. So keep keep thinking about it. Keep wrestling with it. Don't accept easy answers. And thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to A Reverend Bible Talk. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us at soundcloud.com slash irreverentbible. And remember, just like Balaam and his donkey learned, sometimes even God communicates through a talking ass.